Well, let me say a few introductory things. First of all, I know some people are here for the first time or haven't been here for the last few weeks. So let me say that what we're doing at the moment is we are listening to Paul's letter to the Romans, or it just sometimes gets called Romans. It's a big letter. You might have gathered that from the reading. It's a foundational letter. So if you want to make a serious attempt to understand Christianity, this is part of what you need to have a look at if you possibly can. It's not an easy read, as you will have uh, gathered from the reading, but it is dynamite. It is the most explosive uh, document, well, the most, it is a most explosive document. Uh, it was explosive in the time of Paul, got him into huge trouble. It was one of the documents that affected uh, Augustine, a famous teacher of the church who lived in North Africa. He lived in a seedy seaside town. I always feel a certain affinity with Augustine. Uh, uh, and it, of course it affected Martin Luther, who, whose understanding of Christianity was revolutionized by getting back to what Paul actually said. And I think we could say that it's, uh, it, it affected the way Europe was politically, uh, certainly religiously, but politically and economically. Uh, it was this document and the teachings within it which led to the rise of the West uh, as, it, uh, as we now understand it, and it still affects people today. And you might say, well, what's so explosive about this document? Well, in a nutshell, the thing that it tackles is how to be right with God. And if you think of it this way, uh, here's a box of people who are marked unrighteous, and here's a box of people who are marked righteous, and the question is, how do you move from that box to that box? This box is, an, is, a, is a box where God disapproves, and indeed, in fact, the Bible would say that the penalty is the death penalty, and that's why there is death. The righteous come under the approval of God. So how can we move out of God's disapproval into his approval? And Paul was working against the background of the Jewish tradition and their answer would be that you rely on ethnicity so your nationality that the Jewish people would have relied on rituals like circumcision that would have been a very important thing for them and they would also have relied upon moral effort and they say for these reasons that's how you get into that box because you have the right parentage, the right tradition, you've been through the right rituals, and you've tried hard. And they would have called that the works of the law. And Paul is very emphatic, and he says this is not the way it is. Now, most people would say, well, what's wrong with that? Uh, but Paul says that that isn't the way God does it. God does it another way. And Paul's answer would be that Jesus Christ is key to this, that he was crucified, he died, actually he suffered the death penalty, and Jesus Christ is offered 
he comes to us, as it were, um, with various promises that what he did can affect us today. And this can be received simply by faith. So forget your ethnicity. It doesn't count for anything. Forget uh, the rituals that you may or may not have done. That doesn't count for anything. Forget the moral effort that you've tried to put in or not. That doesn't count for anything. The only thing that counts is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and I'm putting my entire trust in him. And this is a very radical and in fact scandalous proposition but that's what Paul says and if you think it's not scandalous think Jimmy Savile and it's saying that if Jimmy Savile or somebody like him were to trust in Jesus Christ the moral history of his life would be rendered obsolete and redundant because he would be counted righteous by trusting in Jesus Christ and have a think about that and think how radical and mind-boggling that idea is. I'll say no more about that because that's what goes on in the earlier chapters of Romans. I'll be happy to answer questions about it but we've got to chapter 8 and chapter 8 is the bit about being children of God. So if you have your Bible there you'll see in verse 14 it says as many no it says those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God it says it in verse 14 it says in verse 15 you have received the spirit of sonship so that's to do with being a son child of God by him we cry Abba father Abba is an Aramaic word sort of a bit like Hebrew meaning daddy Abba and father obviously and then in verse 16 he talks about the spirit testifying that we are God's children and verse 17 it says if we are children and in verse 19 it says the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed so I'm simply saying that the text speaks about being children of God, being sons of God, and God being father. Have a good look. Does it say daughter? It doesn't actually, does it? It does say children, so that's uh, not gender specific. But it does say sons does say children, doesn't say daughter. There is a reason for that, which we might come to, but it speaks about God being father. So that's what we're going to look at. Let me first of all give a little warning. It is a way of speaking about spiritual things. So in another way, uh, another part of the Bible, it says God is like a mother hen who wants to gather her chicks doesn't mean that God has feathers and goes around clucking it's a way of speaking about God so if your idea of a father is father is the person who's grumpy until he's had his tea that's not saying God is like that if your idea of father is a father who is 
who forgets everything while watching football on TV, uh, that's, it's not saying God is like that. It's, we have to listen to the way it says, understand God is like a father in ways like this. For example, it's going to talk about the father as being the source of security. So that's a, a good earthly father would be like that. So that's the right idea to have. Uh, it talks about God the Father having strength and wisdom and being, as it were, able to look after things. And a good earthly father would be like that. Obviously not to an infinite degree, but, but to some genuine degree. And he says that's a good way to think of God as our heavenly father. Uh, an earthly father ought to have good communication with his children and be accessible to his children. Fathers aren't always as good at this as they could be, but think along those lines and you'll be thinking rightly of what it means to have God as father. And also the matter of inheritance. Inheritance is when a father passes on to his children or in particular to the son which is why son is mentioned rather than daughter the idea of inheritance all the riches of the father assuming your father ever had any riches that is all those riches are passed on by way of inheritance to the the firstborn son and that idea is here in the text although it's rather strange because uh, in order for that to be true on earth, the father has to die, but in, uh, in the Bible, the father does not die, but he still gives an inheritance to his children. So that's just to set us up on the idea of thinking, as we're going to do, about uh, God being our father and us being his children. Are we okay so far? Yeah, right. So I would like to do this in, uh, to give you six, as it were, bullet points or six headings. And I think that these headings would work two ways. They would be good reasons for you either A, to be a Christian, or B, to not be a Christian. Uh, shall I try and explain that? I, I think the things that I'm saying here, or the things that that Paul is saying on the one hand might say this is great I, would, I want to be this on the other hand they are so well you'll see what they are uh, but I think you might say well this gives me a very good reason not to be a Christian because I don't believe this and I don't agree with it okay that's puzzled you sufficiently I put A and B and then I realise that in the rest of my points I'd put them the other way round but anyway uh, let's carry on show you what the sort of thing I mean so we're looking at what Paul says in this revolutionary letter about being children of God number one according to Paul sonship is not a right but a privilege sonship is not a human right but it is a privilege a human right is something that everybody says I need I'm going to have that and Paul says it is not a human right it is a privilege so you might be saying I've got a little blue person here objecting and they're saying but everybody is a child of God it's a human right and I put there 
bomb fog bomb fog b o m f o g bomb fog bomb fog brotherhood of man fatherhood of god so that's the idea of bomb fog which says everybody we're all one big happy human family god is the father of everybody what could be sweeter and nicer and i must say it's a very attractive idea but it's not what paul teaches unfortunately he's not teaching the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of god if that were the case then nobody would need to turn or change or bother because it would be saying everything's fine as it is Paul does not say that Paul does not say that sonship of God is a right that everybody already has he says it's a privilege well that is what it seems to me he says in verse 14 he says am I right it says he says those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God verse 14 that is what he says isn't it those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God I don't think he means everybody let's get try and get a handle on that Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert at the time of his temptation you remember that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and it says he was led by the spirit same words now when Jesus was led by the spirit what was it like well he was totally depending on God he had the deepest possible respect for God that's how Jesus lived it was his number one concern to obey and please and honor his father that's what Jesus was like when he was led by the spirit and I don't think that you could say that everybody humanly is like that has those attitudes not everyone is led by the spirit and therefore not everyone can say God is my father how about you would you like to say God is your father would you say actually it is my number one concern to obey the father I do depend on God I know I do I do respect him deeply well if you if you're not able to say that then you're not having the same attitude as Jesus you're not led by the spirit and I don't think you could say God is your father so this might be a very good reason for you not to be a Christian you might say I find this very insulting I find this I'm very affronted by this and here is I've been to church this morning and I've come away more convinced not to be a Christian than I was when I went in and in a way I'd say fair enough because this is what the Bible says and maybe it is rather insulting on the other hand you might be very grateful you might say uh, I would love to be a child of God uh, and is this a, a real thing that people can be led by the spirit and be children of God is does God give this privilege I would be 
I would be so grateful to have this privilege. So number one, sonship is not a right, but a privilege. Number two, sonship is a supernatural gift. I think this is what Paul is saying. Verse 15, he says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We received, or you received, the spirit of sonship, and that's how you became a son of God. And you might say, I don't like that. It sounds rather creepy. Receiving spirits sounds like a creepy horror thing. Spirits taking you over. Don't like it. Uh, now, it is saying that it's supernatural. It's not saying that this is horrific. I mean, there are spirits that are horrific and unclean and spoil human life but the Spirit of God is not a spirit like that. So we're not talking about something horrible and nasty. Just revisiting the supernatural, it is saying that to become a child of God is not a product of human skill, not a product of human goodness, not a product of human spirituality, not a product of human effort, it's something from God. To become a son of God is a supernatural gift. And I notice his wording, you received the spirit of sonship. You received the spirit of sonship. If you think of things that you have received, you might have received Christmas presents, you might have received a birthday card, you might have received, well I can think of things that you've received, and he says you received the Spirit of God. It's different from having something rammed down your throat. It's different from having something forced on you. God does not force his Spirit into people. That's what the devil does, but God gives his Spirit and people receive his spirit. It's not forced or imposed. So I might now have given you a second reason not to be a Christian. You might say, well, God is, don't believe in God. God is imaginary. God is something made up by uh, weak-minded people. And so now you've told me that uh, this Christianity business is supernatural. I'm even more convinced I don't want to be a Christian and I'm I'm, uh, I'm not up for this. On the other hand, you might be saying, does God really give his spirit to people? What an amazing thought that the spirit of God, that I can receive the spirit of God and that my life can be filled and energized and touched by God at such a deep level that that could happen. That's absolutely amazing. I really want to have some of that. So it might work both ways, mightn't it? So that was number two. Number three. Sonship is to do with personal prayer. So I'm reading on and it says in verse 
uh, end of verse 15, you received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That's what Paul says. We receive the spirit of sonship and by the work of this spirit we call Abba, Father. By him, by the spirit, we call Abba, Father. And I presume from this he's referring to some sort of instinctive relationship thing whereby a child calls out to parent, uh, usually it's mama first, isn't it? Dada, mama. And you, you don't have to send a child to university to get them to that point. It comes very early. It's very instinctive, isn't it? Uh, so just as a child will cling to the parent, the child will call out, perhaps at inconvenient times, it has to be said, Mama, 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 or whatever. And he's saying that it is possible for a human being so to receive the Spirit of God that we have this instinct of calling to God, Abba, Abba, Father, Father. So I point out that he's talking about something that is person to person. He's not saying that the Spirit of God gives us um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that th this is not impersonal. He's not saying that God gives us a spirit of um, getting up early in the morning or a spirit of making sure that we try hard on things, but a spirit of relating personally to God, Abba, Father. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's a personal relationship. And the translation that says of the spirit by him we cry, Abba, Father, is translating it right. It's not by it as a like gravity or electricity, a thing, but it's all personal. And I'll say something about the word for cry. Uh, the word for cry here is quite a strong word. Uh, John the Baptist cried in the wilderness, so he sort of shouted out. Uh, I think it, the, the woman that was um, possessed by a, an evil spirit went, out, went after Paul and his companions and shouted after them. These are the servants of the living God or whatever. It's sort of a, quite a, a, a shrieky sort of word. Shriek is when you, when you really shout out, Mom! Dad! You know, I'm stuck! I'm stuck in a tree! Uh, put both my legs down the same leg of my trousers and I'm stuck or whatever children might cry out it's, it, and do you see this is what he's saying by him we cry Abba Father it's not cooing I guess there might be another word for cooing I don't know what it is it's not just in the very contented ah dad it's not like that. It's, it's more, you know, I'm stuck in the tree. Dad! We cry, Abba, Father. And it seems to me that that is fundamentally what prayer is about. It's saying that the child of God is born with an instinct for prayer and therefore lives a life of prayer. And if you were thinking of calling out this morning, even on your way down, Father, Abba! That was a right 
Christian thing to do by the spirit we call Abba, Father. And then I might have given you then a third reason for not being a Christian. You might be saying, I find the idea of praying to a deity unacceptable. Many people would say that. Many people would say, I'm not gonna humble myself to, to pray. I, you know, I, I would as soon do that as, and I can't think of a, a way of finishing that sentence, but I might have given you um, a third reason for saying Christianity is not for me. If it's to do with praying, if this is what it is, I'm not having that. On the other hand, you might say, this is good news I'm hearing this morning because there's lots of times in life when I need the strength, the supply, the comfort of a heavenly father. And I've heard this morning that one of the most fundamental things about being a Christian is that you cry out, Abba, Father, and it's a right thing to do. God hears prayer like that. So uh, that was the third thing. Number four, sonship brings spiritual confidence. So I'm, I'm reading on the text and Paul has said in verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, that we are God's children. The spirit co-testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The sonship brings spiritual confidence. So I've drawn a little person here. This is not the objecting person, but it's a, a, an asking person. And this person is saying, can I really be a child of God? Is it possible that someone like me, you know, you might finish that sentence in any way. Is it possible that someone like me, who's um, just a child, uh, just young, could I have this sort of spiritual confidence? Or you might say, could it be that someone like me who's ignored Christian faith for so many years could have this spiritual confidence? Or it might be, can I, who've messed up in so many ways, have this spiritual confidence? And the answer to all those questions is yes, because the Spirit testifies that we are the children of God. And he testifies with our spirit. So I'm saying to this little person on the screen, the person saying, can I be a child of God? And so we say, well, um, little person, do you believe? Do you put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And the person might say, well, I do. And you might say to this person, and when you are in deep trouble, is it your instinct not to swear and get angry, but is it your instinct to cry out to God for help? It might not be a very well-formed prayer, but it's definitely a prayer. And the person might say, yes, it is actually. And the person can then say, well, these are the things the Bible says are Christian. And can I therefore be a Christian? I believe I can say that. I do believe, I do pray, these things are true of me, I am a Christian. And the Spirit, God himself, co-testifies. He testifies with the Spirit of the believer. So in a sense, he puts a tick and says, yes, you're right. 
you do believe. You are right. That is a sign of being a child of God. And yes, you do pray, and it is real prayer. And yes, you're right to draw a therefore conclusion. And yes, you're right to say, I am a child of God. And the Spirit co-testifies with our spirit, and we can have spiritual confidence to say we are children of God. Now, it seems to me that one of the greatest gifts a child can have is to know for certain that they are loved. Not all children have this, I'm, I'm sorry to say, and, and I don't think it's something that one can easily overcome. I know one, uh, I knew one child who was, uh, who was told, uh, you, weren't, you were not wanted. You were not wanted. What a terrible thing to say to a child. What a terrible thing to say. Uh, and, and to grow up working through, uh, you know, I, was, I wasn't wanted. Seems to me the greatest gift a child can have is to know for certain that they're loved. And this confidence a Christian can have, I am a child of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. The Spirit says to us, you are the child of God. That seems to me to be a great thing. On the other hand, I suppose it could be the clinching argument to turn you off Christianity. You might say, well, I've always thought these Christian people were um, a bit um, arrogant, and now I've, I've heard it in so many words. Don't mind the sort of Christianity where people are full of doubts and they never know quite what they believe, but this sort of Christianity that, that is being explained this morning is arrogant because it has certainty to it and conviction, and people can say, I am a child of God. And that might be the uh, it, that might be something which confirms you in not wanting to be a Christian. On the other hand, you might say, now you put it that way, I ha I have to say that that is the if you like right at the root of what helps me live from day to day. How fantastic! to know that God loves me. How amazing to know that I have a Father in heaven. I couldn't live any other way. How could I face life's uncertainties? How could I face the way people have treated me if I did not know spiritually that I am a child of God? You might say that. That was number four. Number five. Sonship brings the family experience of suffering in this life. Now, this might be a bit surprising because you think this is not particularly positive, but this is what he says. Uh, in verse 17, he says, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Then Paul goes on to say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So he does talk about suffering. And it's a family experience because, of course, Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. He suffered rejection. He suffered misunderstanding. He suffered contradiction, where people just said to him, no, you're wrong. 
uh, and he suffered expulsion. He was pushed out. Uh, at the end, he was pushed out of life. He was executed. Uh, it doesn't always get as far as that with Christians, but that's what Jesus suffered. And Paul says, if we're part of the family, you see, we, to some degree, and we can't avoid this, we share in his sufferings. Now, Paul, at another point, says, this is actually chapter five, he says, we boast in our sufferings because suffering produces, and he gives a list of things, perseverance, character, hope. So please notice what he says. If we are children of God, we therefore enter into the family experience of suffering in this life to some degree. He does say that the suffering is productive. It produces something. And he goes on to say that God works all things together for good. So he is not saying that in this family you escape suffering. He's saying in this family you enter into suffering. But it is productive and it leads to something positive. And seeing as we had uh, some lads from Lewis this morning, I can give you the example of the Lewis martyrs who are uh, to some degree celebrated in the bonfire celebrations of, uh, of, of Lewis uh, on Wikipedia, so it must be right, 1554, somebody whose name I didn't write down was holding a Bible study on the place that is now the Black Lion Pub in Brighton. Can't remember his name. And okay, right, Eric Carver. And then 1556, if I read it correctly, these 10 people did much the same thing. Richard Woodman, George Stevens, Alexander Harmon, William Maynard, Thomas Cena Wood, Marjorie Morris, James Morris, Dennis Burgess, Anne Ashton, Mary Groves, and they were put to death. They were burned for doing much the same thing as we're doing now, for reading the Bible, for praying, for believing in Jesus Christ, and for not being willing to say, no, I got it wrong. They just stood up for their faith, and that's a particularly extreme form, isn't it? Uh, but they died for believing they had the family experience of suffering in this life to the fullest extent to the, to the giving up of their lives. And that was in Brighton and that was in Lewis. Uh, so this might be the final argument now for you not to be a Christian. You might say, I'm not up for that. I'm not quite sure how, you, how, how one would put that. You, you might say, as far as I'm concerned, life should not contain suffering. There should be no such thing. It doesn't exist. I'm not quite sure how that would work because it seems a very unreal uh, view of life. On the other hand, you might say, 
I'm so pleased I've heard something this morning that makes sense of suffering. I'm so pleased that there is, I found Jesus who himself suffered. So I've got an example to follow and from his sufferings enormous good came and I would like to be part of that. And I'm hearing uh, the text that God works all things together for good for those who love him, that God is able to bring good out of suffering. Uh, And you might say, this is good news. Here is something that will make sense of an aspect of life which otherwise is completely random, completely inexplicable. Well, two, two options there. And sixthly and finally, sonship contains the promise of future bodily life in glory. So what I'm referring to is where it says in uh, verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs. So the heir, H-E-I-R, the heir is somebody who inherits. So the inheritance is when you receive Uh, from your father the riches the property that he passes on to you as son if we are children then we are heirs and he says co-heirs with Christ so whatever Christ inherits we inherit along with him and in verse 17 it talked about sharing in his sufferings and then sharing in his glory and he's more explicit in verse 23 which our Semmer read to us, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. It's a sonship thing. And the final installment is the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. So... uh, The Christian hope at a funeral is not that we will end up wafting around in heaven. The Christian hope is new bodies, new physical bodies in a renewed creation. That's what he says is the final implication of being children of God. And you might say, you might say this is daft daft meaning silly stupid Uh, it's impossible physically scientifically impossible you might say it's unthinkable doesn't even make sense you might say it's ridiculous Uh, nobody should seriously think of this well, I have to say, that's not; those aren't new ideas. In the times of Jesus, the Sadducees, the, one of the ruling Jewish groups, said there is no resurrection. And in the time of Paul, the very, very clever Greeks said it is resurrection. New physical bodies after death, totally philosophically impossible. So it's not new to object to this. Uh, People have objected to it 
people have said it's uh, philosophically impossible, it's scientifically impossible, it's uh, ridiculous, it's uh, an insult to people's intelligence. But I have to say that Jesus took no notice of this and just raised from the dead anyway. Jesus just went and did it. God raised him from the dead and he was seen and there is extremely good evidence that this actually took place. So I suppose, I haven't actually put this part in, but I suppose you might say this is the final evidence, the final reason for you not to be a Christian. Can't accept the resurrection. Okay. On the other hand, you might say, this is, of all the good news things we thought about this morning, this has to be either the best or you know, tying for a very high place here. To think that my life on this earth is not the end of everything, that I haven't got to extract every last ounce of pleasure and reward from this life, because that's all there is, might not amount to much, but you're telling me that there is a life, a physical life in the world to come that will make this life pale into insignificance. Like Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. If you're telling me that the best is yet to come by far, you might say that's a very good reason to be a Christian. I'll leave that with you. What did we look at? We looked at these six things, the privilege of sonship, the fact it's a supernatural gift, the fact that it brings us into a person-to-person relationship of prayer, the fact that we have a certain spiritual confidence and certainty, the fact that this makes sense of suffering and makes suffering productive, and that there's a future resurrection. Well, those are the things that we've looked at Uh, As you know, and I've sometimes mentioned this before on Facebook, the internet program, there is a little button on an entry called a like button, and you can press that if you like what what has been said. And I wonder whether you this morning would like, as it were, to press the like button and say, this is brilliant stuff. This is what, I'm all up for this. And maybe you wouldn't have pressed the like button before but you're beginning to think actually I would like a bit of that you might like to say to God yes please or you might like to remember again as I said right at the beginning that the key to this is not trying harder is not ethnicity is not ritual but it's faith